0: Welcome to The Constructor Cast, your AGC place for all the news, views, and interviews relevant to your construction business. I'm your host, Amy Hager. With me today is Dr. Nicholas Eberstad, an American political economist and author of Men Without Work, which is the focus of our podcast today. Welcome, Dr. Eberstad. Can you tell us a little more about yourself?
1: Sure. Thank you for inviting me, Amy. I'm a a researcher at the American Enterprise Institute, a think tank in Washington. I work on demographics and economic development. I have a sick fascination with North Korea, which will not detain us on this podcast. (laughs) I think the reason uh, we'll be talking today is that I uh, published a book called Men Without Work, uh, America's Invisible Crisis, about the long-term collapse of work in America for guys, which I regard as uh, not just a social and economic problem, but also a, uh, a moral problem for our society, and I think it's manifestly also a political problem.
0: Well, and I think that leads perfectly into why we're extremely interested in this topic, because recently AGC released a study that states 70% of construction firms report they are having a hard time filling hourly craft positions, whom really represent the bulk of our construction workforce. And some of the issues in the study that AGC covered was funding for career and technical education, the potential negative perception of construction as a career, and the workers that exited the industry after the crash in 2008. And so your book, Men Without Work, really shined a different light on the sort shortage. And so that's where I kind of want to start our conversation today. In short, can you explain what your research has found and um, what's the major impact?
1: Sure. Uh, Paradoxically, we have more unfilled jobs in America today than at any previous time in our history, but we also have a lower work rate uh, employment to population ratio for men of prime working age, the uh, 25 to 54 group, than in 1940 at the tail end of the Depression. For 50 years, the proportion of men uh, without paid work has been relentlessly ratcheting upward. And critically, unlike during the Depression, the overwhelming majority of these guys who don't have work are not classically unemployed. They're not uh, without jobs, but looking for them. They're checked out of the labor force altogether. We have now an army of seven million men in this critical age group who are neither working nor looking for work. And of course, uh, this is connected to the shortages that your industry is facing, but it's also connected with other things we've seen in the US. It's connected with our uh, slower pace of economic growth, with our widening income and wealth gaps, and with a lot of other kind of troubling big trends that we see in America today.
0: So in your book, um, you state, and I quote, we cannot begin to grapple with this challenge to our future unless we first understand it. So how do you think we got here?
1: Well, it's true that in every rich society, over the last 50 years, there's been some drop-off in workforce participation for prime-age guys. But no country has had as bad a drop-off in the rich world as we have had. We have won a race we really shouldn't want to win. There are many uh, experts, um, labor economists, policymakers who say this is all a result of structural economic change, technical innovation, globalization, the decline in demand for less skilled uh, work. And there's obviously something to that. But I don't buy this as being the 100% answer to what's gone on. Mm-hmm. I mean, for one thing, if you look at the trend For the percentage of prime age guys who do not have paid work. Over the last 50 years, it's almost a straight line up. And that wouldn't happen if recessions, trade shocks, uh, sudden new innovations uh, were the biggest part of the story. You couldn't get a straight line like that. Mm -hmm. Um, A couple of the other things that are happening. One of them is the rise of what we might call the, um, the disability archipelago. About three out of five guys of prime working ages who are checked out of the labor force altogether are reporting at least one disability benefit. Uh, you can't live like a prince on disability, mm-hmm. but it does provide a, an alternative lifestyle, a work-free lifestyle, for a growing number of people, uh, which is to say, I think the program is being uh, badly misused by many, uh, kind of like thwarting its original and I think quite noble purpose. The other thing which is hiding in plain sight has been the rise of an invisible felon population in our midst. We all hear about mass incarceration, and we know about the two and a half million people behind bars in America today, but only about 1 in 10 people who has a felony in his or her background is actually behind bars. Mm -hmm. There are about 20 million people in society as a whole, maybe a little more than 20 million, uh, who have a felony and are not behind bars. And this works out to be about 1 in 8 adult men, Uh, probably more than 1 in 8 for the uh, prime working age group Uh, I can't be that much more precise because the government, I think, astonishingly, doesn't collect information uh, on this major segment of our nation at this point. So these are a couple of the additional factors, I think, that have contributed to this, uh, I think, quite alarming situation in our country at this moment.
0: Mm -hmm. So then how do these issues play out? geographically is it more pronounced in certain regions of our country
1: that's a very good question yes it certainly is and I mean to make a big generalization the problem is more acute in rural America than Mm -hmm. in urban America as someone said uh, rural is the new inner city but then also it's very different uh, from one state to the next I mean, uh, West Virginia has mm-hmm. is famously troubled with respect to the um, labor force dropout rate for prime age men. The same is true for Maine. Uh, you can look across the map, and you can see different areas that are particularly hard hit. It'll be no surprise that parts of the South and parts of Appalachia are very hard hit. But if you if you do it on a kind of a county by county map, uh, you can see these uh, these big patterns all across the country. There 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 are sort of like hotspots all around the nation hmm. where the situation is particularly severe.
0: What about different demographics? Is this a crisis mm-hmm. across all demographics?
1: That's a very good question. Uh, Of course, when you have a group of 7 million people, you're probably going to have some of everybody, right? Correct. Uh, But some groups are overrepresented. So uh, as far as ethnicity is concerned, African-American guys are overrepresented. But among people of color, interestingly enough, both Asians and Latinos are underrepresented. They're more likely to be in the workforce than the national average. Uh, The educational breakdown is uh, less educated guys, high school dropouts, way overrepresented, college grads, and um, graduate degrees, way underrepresented. It's kind of interesting, but family uh, structure seems to matter a bunch. Married guys, no matter what their educational level or ethnicity, are uh, less likely to be in this pool. They're more likely to be in the workforce. Never married guys, exactly the opposite. And hmm. uh, immigration matters as well. Guys who are born in this country are more likely to be out of the workforce. Foreign-born guys, no matter what their ethnicity, whether they're black or white or Asian or Hispanic, they're more likely to be in the workforce. Uh, so these are the kind of the big trends that one sees uh, across society as a whole.
0: Mm-hmm. So one thing that pops into my mind is, you know, we've made strides to increase the female workforce participation since the 1950s. Uh-huh. But since April of 2000, the female participation rate has declined in the U.S. while other economically developed countries continue to rise. So why, why did you choose to focus on the decline of the male participation rate instead of the overall decline in the workforce participation rate across the U.S.?
1: I'm glad you asked that question. Yes, um, it is true that we've had had a problem for both men and women for basically all of our new century with with work rates and labor force participation rates basically declining for both men and women. Uh, There's something pretty serious afoot there. The reason I did this on men rather than on everybody, or men and women, is because the trend for men has been going on for so much longer, and because the dimensions of it are so much larger than this newer, but I think very worrisome problem for women. Um, if you If you look at the problem for guys by themselves, if, if we were back if we controlled for changing age structure, you know for the graying of society, if we mm-hmm. took that into account. Uh, And we took the increase in adult education into account, we would still have a deficit of almost 10 million jobs for working age men compared to the work rates of the of the mid-1960s. I mean, it's absolutely enormous. Now, I'm certainly not saying that the several million job deficit for women is a trivial matter. (laughs) I wrote another paper all about that. Yeah, uh, that's another podcast. But it's, It's another podcast. But it's because this trend for men has been going on for half a century, and because its magnitude is so is so very large, I wanted to focus on that one first.
0: That makes sense. It's a little bit more easily digestible, I guess you could say, when you do focus on just the one topic or the one area.
1: Well, Amy, can I say one thing about this? Yeah. I mean, there's also very important and I think also troubling differences between the men and the women who are checked out of the workforce. Okay. Um, so not not quite half, so 40%. Of uh, working-age women who are not in the workforce uh, are out because they say they're caring for kids or caring for other people. Mm -hmm. The proportion of men who are out of the workforce because they say they're caring for other people is basically a rounding error. I mean it's it's tiny. Uh, There is a care chasm between men not in the workforce and women not in the workforce. And when you look at what the men who are not in the workforce say they do with their day, it's really troublesome. Um, about a tenth, as I said, are adult students, and they're you know getting ready to get back in the workforce with improved skills. Mm-hmm. Uh, their time-use patterns look more or less like employed men. But the overwhelming majority who are neither employed nor in education or training uh, look really dispiriting. They basically don't do civil society. Uh, mm-hmm. Very, very little worship, volunteering, charitable activity. Uh, As mentioned, even though they have uh, seemingly nothing but time on their hands, uh, surprisingly little help with kids or other people around the house, surprisingly little in the way of household chores, what they report doing is watching, whether it's uh, TV or um, DVDs or Internet or whatever. They report an average of 2,100 hours a year watching Okay? It's like it's a full-time job.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: from other information that we now have, um, those same guys, about half of them, report that they're taking pain pills every day. Uh, so it's not just playing World of Warcraft, you know. It's uh, spending all day playing World of Warcraft stoned.
0: Mm-hmm. It's a
1: really frightening uh, transformation for a large part of our society.
0: So, Dr. Arberstadt, in your mind, how can we fix this? How can we really increase that workforce participation rate?
1: In in my book, uh, Men Without Work, I'm a little bit cautious about uh, being kind of a know-it-all on this. Mm-hmm. I don't think that I have the perfect 10-point plan or anything like that. Actually, I think it's most important for people to come from all different sorts of perspectives and offer their own suggestions so that we have all sorts of different uh, people from all across the public square kind of committed to redressing this grave ill. For what it's worth, I mean, I would uh, focus on three or four things myself. Mm -hmm. I mean, number one, skill training. I mean, college is not for everybody, but everybody needs to have a skill if they're going to be able to support themselves. And I think our public K through 12 school system does an unacceptably poor job of inculcating skills into its graduates. It's very uneven. I mean, there's some places that are great and there's some places that sure aren't great. So that's one thing we can do. Uh, Another thing we can do, I think, is to try to revitalize small business. For almost 40 years, the startup rate of new businesses in America has been going down. And some of that is probably related to the tax and regulatory burden, both from Washington and from localities on small businesses. Um, I mean, Apple and Amazon, they're neat, they're amazing, they've got great services. They don't employ a lot of people. Mm -hmm. The the job generators in America are the little businesses. And if the little businesses aren't healthy, our job generation isn't going to be healthy. Um, I think we need to completely overhaul our uh, disability benefit program system, the kind of the crazy quilt of things we have, because uh, we need to have disability insurance for people who need it. But we don't want to have a system that uh, generally incentivizes helplessness and dependence. And I think that the program as it exists has strayed far from its original intention. Uh, We'd be much better served, I think, with a work first principle in our uh, social welfare uh, systems. And finally, uh, if we've got 20 million people with felonies in their backgrounds, and we basically don't know practically anything about their circumstances, that's mm-hmm. terrible. Hmm. Um, we need to have evidence to have an evidence-based approach to re-entry for the millions of people who have paid their debt to society, who don't pose a threat, and um, who want to work. You know, unlocking the value in that population would be great for them great for society. It's a win-win, but we have to be interested in doing that.
0: Well, there's there's two things that you kind of mentioned that I want to relate back to the AGC study and just as I said at the top of the podcast, you know, we found that 70% of the construction firms reported difficulty filling the hourly craft wage position. Yep. Based on your yeah. research, what, if anything, do you think construction owners can do to bring new workers into this industry?
1: Well, um, it would be a lot easier if the government had uh, more information on uh some of these men without work, and, mm-hmm. and uh, the ones who are in the shadows that I mentioned already, that would be, but that's apparently not going to happen anytime soon. I think probably a lot of what needs to be done is gonna be done locally rather than by Uncle Sam or by, yeah. uh, by the government. Training, you know, skills are important. The, the importance of just being drug free uh, and showing up reliably for work is terribly important. Mm-hmm. We might get a little bit more of that if we had disability insurance uh, reform, the same way that we had that for single mothers when we had welfare uh, reform. Um, but I, I think that probably an awful lot of this is going to have to be done in communities by employers or maybe by um, by groups of employers or associations of employers to try to set down the norms and the skill needs and to try to help uh, uh, help arrange for the sorts of training that's necessary.
0: And that flows right into my next kind of question and thought. We're mentioning education and training and here at AGC one solution we've been offering is funding for career and technical schools. But do you think we need to change the signal that we're actually sending to students? So currently, you know, we tell them go to college. But if the message was to change to there's a variety of career paths, maybe go to college, maybe go to craft school or trade school. So do you think a social change like that could help?
1: Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. Yeah, 100 percent, 100 percent. Uh, Like I said, college isn't for everybody, but skills are essential for everybody. We have this kind of uh, sociological problem, I guess it is, in the United States, where the uh, kind of the career counselors uh, in high school uh, who are college grads look in the mirror and say, you should be like me, right?
0: Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And
1: uh, not everybody should be like that. And there are lots of uh, there are lots of paths to uh, really good incomes that don't include the words B.A. Right, and we've failed in both uh, stigmatizing home economics, stigmatizing shop, stigmatizing the vocational track uh, that provide essential skills for adults. Mm-hmm. So, one hundred percent, you know. The vocational track uh, should be ratified and praised, and actually the K through 12 system should be doing a much better job of uh, helping people who want to get these skills, obtain them rather than snobbing them.
0: Well, we're almost out of time today, and so if there is one last message or one last thought that you wanna leave with our listeners, what would that be?
1: This is a, this is a case where the interests of your industry and the interests of our nation are totally in uh, alignment. For mm-hmm. the U.S., we're all in this one together, and uh, you know, r- redressing the men without work problem is not just good for general contractors, it's good for our nation as a whole. So mm-hmm. you know, every everybody's in this one together.
0: Right, I think I could agree with you on that, definitely. Well, I wanna thank you, Dr. Eberstead, for taking time today. And for those of you listening, if you'd like to learn more about workforce development in the AGC study, you can visit www.agc.org workforce. Thank you for listening, and this has been the AGC Constructor Cast.